Our passage for today comes from Luke chapter 19, verses 1 to 10. <clears throat> Luke chapter 19, verses 1 to 10. With God's help, if you would turn your hearts to the reading of his word. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is God's holy and inspired word. Now let's go to him and pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, you have taught us that the greatest command is to love you with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength and to love our neighbor as ourself. God, we pray that as we consider, especially today, what it is to love you, God, to live lives that are given wholly over to you, that you would grant us your spirit. Give us your spirit who you promised to the world would teach us all things, would bring to our remembrance all that Christ has spoken. Father, we pray that as we approach your word today, that you would renew our thoughts, that we would be able to discern your will, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Lord, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And so we pray that you would use it for our good and for your glory this very day. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Here you have in just a few words, the purpose statement from the mouth of our Lord himself, why he condescended why we have the incarnation of the second person of the Godhead. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. He came to rescue those who had gone 
astray. He was the vessel through whom the Father fulfilled that word we heard already today from Ezekiel 34. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed and I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak. How did Jesus accomplish that good purpose? By giving up his life as a ransom for many, by living a sinless life and dying a sinner's death in our place. All we like sheep have gone astray, the Bible says. And the Lord has laid on him that is on Christ, the Lamb of God for sinners slain, the iniquity of us all. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And yet I wonder whether there's ever been someone that you have looked at and maybe you haven't said it, but you've come to the conclusion in your mind that they have wandered so far that they're simply so far gone. They're so lost that they're beyond rescue. You, you, you look at, your, at their life, you look at the sin that they're caught up in, you look at the hardness of their hearts toward the things of God and you think to yourself that they're just beyond finding out or maybe it's not someone else. Maybe it's yourself. Maybe, maybe that's the attitude of the heart toward your own station and your own condition before the Lord. Maybe that's the determination you've come to about yourself and you question whether a person like yourself is, is a lost cause, whether God is, is able to bring you out of your lost estate and deliver you into his fold. We have here before us a text that will challenge our assumptions and shed light on what we believe about the savability, if you will, of even the greatest of sinners. And why do I say that? Well, we're looking at Zacchaeus. We're looking at a man who is both the chief tax collector in Jericho and the Bible here tells us that he is rich. Now, if you have been with us in the study of Luke's gospel thus far, you should have all kinds of red flags going off in your mind as you hear those words about this man. In, in the first chapter of the gospel, according to Luke, before Jesus is ever born, Mary responds to the angel's announcement that Magnificat by saying, he has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. In chapter six, where Jesus preaches that sermon on the plain, he says, woe to you who are rich for you have received your, common, your, your, your consolation. He says, well, there, yes, there is a certain measure of, of comfort and of joy that, that comes with uh, worldly riches and, and wealth, but it's a temporary one. It's a temporary comfort. It's a temporary consolation. After that comes eternal poverty, eternal sorrow and, and loss. 
And we have Zacchaeus before us, who is a very rich man. He's a man who had spent his life uh, enriching himself through ill-gotten gains. He was a Jewish man. who He had essentially purchased the rights to, to go around town and collect taxes uh, on behalf of the Roman establishment, tacking on his own fees as he did. And so he would have been considered a, a turncoat by the Jewish people, a traitor uh, by those that he lived and worked among. The city of Jericho functioned as a, a kind of port of entry uh, coming into Jerusalem. It was a, a strategic sort of choke point where goods were brought through on their way into the holy city. And so it was a great place for a man like Zacchaeus to assess exorbitant taxes uh, as things flowed into Jerusalem and travelers made their way through. So you can imagine the kind of reputation that he would have had in the city. You can imagine the kind of warmth that many would have regarded him with as he made his way around town and uh, the sort of reputation that would have come along uh, with his name whenever it was spoken. You know also the consistent theme of Christ's teaching regarding the spiritual condition that this man was in. Remember what Jesus said to the rich young ruler, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And so, brothers and sisters, in that way, the man that we're looking at today, Zacchaeus, he, he falls into this category of unlikely candidates of those we might find entering in to the kingdom of God, those who might come to know the saving power of God. He's exactly the kind of person we might look at and say, well, has he gone too far? Is he too far gone, spiritually speaking? Is it worth praying for someone like that? He seems like an unlikely candidate. And, and yet, at the same time, there are other dynamics that are going on here as well that we can see in the text. If you have come to the conclusion, having read the Gospel of Luke, that the poor are always a shoe-in when it comes to the kingdom of God, and that the rich are always kept on the outside, this episode is going to confuse you. It's going to surprise you. It's going to leave you scratching your head in a delightful way, I hope. In a way that I, that I pray encourages your faith and causes you to rejoice in the saving power of our God. That surprise begins to unfold in verse three, where it says that, that Zacchaeus, this rich tax collector, was seeking to see who Jesus was. Zacchaeus was seeking to see who Jesus was. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us anything else about it. 
it, it is really tempting to look at that and to try to, to get under the hood, if you will, uh, about what was going on in, in Zacchaeus's heart and mind to, to get to the bottom of why he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But the fact of the matter is the Bible doesn't tell us it, it, it doesn't tell us what his motivation was. It doesn't tell us that he had just heard the hubbub and uh, the commotion about this Jesus of Nazareth who is passing through on the way to Jerusalem and he just wants to go and try to kind of see what's going on and figure out who this man is. It does not tell us that he has a burning issue of conscience uh, something that is really troubling him, uh, that he has come to the, the sure and certain knowledge that Christ could and would forgive him and could set him free. It does not tell us that he came as the tax collector did in the, the chapter that precedes this, that man who came beating his breast, lifting his voice up to heaven saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. It doesn't tell us any of that. It just tells us that he came seeking to see who Jesus was. But that's important. That much tells us something and, it, and it's important. It tells us there's an interest here. There's a real interest. There's not a real understanding. There is certainly not a saving knowledge, a real uh, living relationship with Jesus because he doesn't know who this Jesus is. But there's a real seeking going on. In fact, I would dare say that the witness of this text indicates a certain level of intensity and persistence to his seeking. There's an admirable doggedness to his quest. And that's important too, because Zacchaeus, the Bible tells us, has a couple of things working against him. First of all, he's got these obstacles mentioned in the text. It says, he's seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So you, you've got the press of the crowd on the one hand, and then you've got his height. And those two things are working in cahoots against him to prevent him from seeing who Jesus is. So what is a man in his predicament to do? Well, he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. It's okay if you have that song running through your head right now. My children refused to sing it with me on the way to church. But you gotta imagine this man almost certainly despised by the community, scrambling to get his way up into this tree. He runs up ahead uh, beyond the throng and he climbs into a tree. It's undignified, it's unconventional, it's humbling, it's maybe embarrassing even, even but it is the thing to do. It's exactly the thing to do in this kind of situation. Perhaps 
just perhaps that gives us a little bit of an indication of the lengths that he's willing to go through in order to see this Jesus. Is he embarrassed by the fact he has to shimmy up a tree to see Christ passing by the way? Does his reputation in the community uh, put the, the kibosh on his efforts? No, it doesn't, not at all. Well, that's not the only surprise in this passage. In fact, there's an even greater shock that is still to come. Look at verse five, if you will. There is Zacchaeus now poised in the tree. He's, he's ready, he's waiting, he's eager, ready to get a glimpse of Christ, verse five. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for I must stay at your house today. Now I read that and I find myself impressed with Zacchaeus that he didn't fall out of the tree when he heard his name called by the Lord Jesus Christ. Unbidden, unasked, unprompted, Jesus calls Zacchaeus's name. Jesus makes the first move. The one who came to seek and save the lost calls the name of the chief tax collector in Jericho. Jesus, dear ones, is the one who does the bidding in this text, not Zacchaeus. And look at what he says. He says, hurry and come down for I must stay at your house today. I must, not I would like to, not if you would be so kind as to let me stay at your house today, not Zacchaeus, do you think you might be willing to host me this evening? He does not ask Zacchaeus if this would be a good time for him. He says, I must stay at your house today. Now you have to keep reading until you get to verse 10 to, to find what, what undergirds that divine must. You have to, to keep reading through the whole, whole story to see why that is the case, why Jesus must stay at Zacchaeus' house. But this much is sure already, Jesus knows who Zacchaeus is before Zacchaeus knows who Jesus is. You might just notice that, G, that, G, that, that Jesus calls Zacchaeus by name. Jesus calls Zacchaeus by name. There is a personal knowledge of Zacchaeus by the Lord Jesus Christ. Long before there was a personal knowledge of the Lord by Zacchaeus, there was a personal knowledge of Zacchaeus by the Lord. In John chapter 10, Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd, the one who knows his own. It says there that Jesus calls his own sheep by name. And you see that here. Beloved, the same is true for you. Jesus knows your name. 
The great shepherd of the sheep who lays down his life for his own knows the names of his own. Know that, dear ones. Mark it in your mind. You are not a nameless face in a vast sea of humanity to the Savior. He knows your name. He knows you intimately, personally. You are personally known by the Lord, personally called, personally loved by the Lord Jesus himself. In Jeremiah 1, the Lord tells Jeremiah, before you were formed in the womb, I knew you. The Gospel of John, the, the very first chapter there, Jesus says, sees Nathanael coming toward him. Jesus says, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus said to him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Well, here you have one in a sycamore tree and he has a very different testimony than Nathaniel. His heart is full of deceit, but he is nevertheless known and called by the Lord. It all brings to the fore this question of who is seeking whom. Zacchaeus goes out looking for Jesus only to find Jesus looking for him. It was Christ, brothers and sisters, who took the initiative in seeking him out. Jesus is the great seeker of the sheep. Now you might be thinking to yourself, but I did seek after God. I did search for him. I, I can remember yearning and looking for the Savior. But every seeking after God on the part of man is a result of the initiative of God in our own heart first. To your own eye, you may look back at your conversion and you might remember a real longing and a desire and a zeal and, and you might talk in terms of your seeking after God. You might see in Zacchaeus' story an affinity with that of your own. But left to ourselves, we would never have the slightest inkling of desire for the Lord. We would never, ever seek after him. In fact, the Apostle Paul puts it so bluntly, so plainly in, in Romans chapter three. He says it in just a few words. He says, no one seeks for God. No one seeks for God. No one. No one at all. Those words stop the mouths of every man that would glory in himself. Every pursuit of God on the part of man is owing to the initiative of God in our own heart first. There's an old hymn that puts it this way. It says, I sought the Lord and afterward I knew he moved my soul to seek him, seeking me. It was not I that found, O Savior, true. No, I was found of thee. Glory to God. It was the initiative and grace of God by which Zacchaeus found himself seeking after Christ that day, desiring to investigate and to know 
who this Jesus was. Dear ones, consider that it was the initiative and the providence of God that put even that sycamore tree where it was, that Zacchaeus might scramble his way up there and have himself positioned in the proper place that day, that he might be able to hearken his voice to the call of Christ and respond. It is the initiative of God by which you find yourself sitting here today under the public ministry of the word, hearing the good news of Jesus Christ who came to seek and to save the lost. He is why you are here today. How will you respond? I would submit to you that we see in Zacchaeus a a model response to the call of God in Christ, a model response to the call of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse six. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. First, he hurried. His response was immediate. Again, he he hearkened his ear to the call of God in Christ, and he responded. He was moved into action, and he came down. Now, how many have spent many years of their lives hearing the general call of the gospel. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Those good words from Christ's mouth, come to me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But you have hesitated to come down from the sycamore tree, as it were. You, you wait and you linger and you, you, you tarry in your response. Why do you linger? Why do you hesitate? This man hurried and so must you. Some of you have been perched in that sycamore tree for far too long. And it is time for you to come down. It is time for you to respond to the call of God in Christ. The the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is good news to be believed and to be obeyed, to respond to. When Christ bids Zacchaeus, hurry, come down. He hurried and he came down, he obeyed. And you see what came Alongside that obedience, he received him joyfully. There was gladness and enthusiasm that sprang up in his heart at the the very thought of sharing fellowship and communion with the Lord. Now, just put those things that we see here in his response together. He hurried Jesus commanded him at the sound of his voice. He hurried and came down and received him joyfully. How many of you think of obedience and joy as things that go together in the Christian faith? Do you think of those two things as friends? They're fast friends in the Christian faith. The psalmist got it when he said in Psalm 119 and verse two, happy are those who keep his testimonies who seek him with their whole heart. Happy, blessed 
I pray you know that kind of joy that comes with faith and obedience to the Lord Jesus. Now we come to verse seven and as we have really almost come to expect in this, these kinds of narratives, we now step back from the main characters in the story and see the reaction of those who are looking on, those who are standing by. And notice just the contrast here. While Zacchaeus joys at the, at the prospect of receiving Christ into his home, the crowd grumbles. And this is something we just might add, you should be prepared for when you receive the Lord, that if Christ comes to reside within you, if he comes to dwell in your heart by faith, you will meet the objection of the world. Some will grumble. Why will they grumble? We don't have to wonder. The, the Bible here tells us, verse seven says, when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. What a commentary those words are. What a loaded statement it is. How much this reveals about their own self-understanding and, and their perception of, of others. How profoundly the, the words of our mouths expose the abundance of our heart. What's going on in the inner man? These people are all steamed up that Jesus would share table fellowship with the likes of this kind of man, a notorious sinner. Jesus is a friend of tax collectors and sinners. It's interesting, isn't it, that words like that can be a balm to the soul and a, a, a comfort and a, a ground for rejoicing for some and then at the same time be cause for derision and scorn for others. It's the same reality, the same truth, and yet people can respond to that reality in such differing ways. Remember though, that this is coming from the crowd of people following Jesus, following him into Jerusalem. What does that tell you? What does that teach you? You can be on Jesus's side, ostensibly speaking, you can be by all appearances with Christ and yet stand opposed to him. Severely mistaken about the, the tendency of his ways. Is there a way that we might be able to run that same risk? Is there a way that we might find ourselves susceptible to the same kind of error today to, to think that Jesus uh, shouldn't or for whatever reason, shouldn't associate with certain kinds of people. That he shouldn't have dealings with people who are that notorious. Are you ever tempted to think along those lines? Are there ever people in your life that you know and you, you see a temptation in your heart to size them up with with natural eyes and to, to make this determination in your heart and mind that the likeliness of their salvation is next to nothing because of their past, because of their reputation, because of what they're caught up in. You have a, a prayer list of people that seem likely they might come to Christ. 
Of course, we'd never say this to one another, right? But then there are those who seem so far away from the Lord, they've wandered so far. We wonder about the value of praying for them. What does that say about where our hope is found? Who our trust really is in? Is it possible for Christ's followers to to fall into this kind of pride and hubris and forget that we find ourselves on Jesus' side, if you can indulge that kind of language, uh, purely because of all that hangs on his mercy, on his merit, nothing of our own, nothing that we bring to the table. We're, we're forgetful people. We, we lose sight of just how repugnant our own sin is. Somehow we begin to think that religion is about who we are, about our own worth, how we measure up, what we've done for God. That's true of every other religion in the world, but it isn't, it isn't true of the Christian faith. The Christian faith is not about how you measure up or what you have done for God, but about what he has done for you. In fact, the gospel of Jesus Christ says you don't measure up and that's why he had to come. May the Lord humble our hearts as we think about our own depravity need of his mercy and grace. The Lord isn't done working in Zacchaeus' heart. Let me direct your attention to verse eight. It says there, and Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. New resolves, new resolves have already begun to form in this man's heart. No longer is he taking advantage of of other people. Already he is thinking about serving them. Money and wealth and riches, they don't have the same kind of grip on his heart that they had before. He has a new master. He has a new Lord. And and you find this new orientation in life uh, that's this already begin, begun to, to gestate in his heart and mind in terms of how he thinks about the resources that God has given him. They're not for him. He starts thinking about the poor and in just a breath, he gives away half of the fortune that he's accumulated. Just a breath, there it goes to a new master. So the Lord takes hold of Zacchaeus's heart and his wallet. Really one gives way to the other. He's a new creation. He's got a new heart, which gives way to new thinking, new habits, new practices, new concerns, a whole new way of living. When Lyndon Johnson was president, he had a a letter framed in the Oval Office uh, that General Sam Houston had written to Johnson's grandfather, George Baines, that's the B, and Lyndon B. Johnson. Uh, More than 100 years earlier, Baines had led Sam Houston to Christ when he was 61 years old, just two years before uh, Sam Houston died. 
When the day came for Sam Houston to be baptized, it was this enormous event. He was such a a well-known figure uh, right after his baptism, immediately after he, out, he offered to pay half of the local minister's salary, right then and there. Now, you might be inclined to, to look askance at something like that. You know, you might be inclined to think poorly of something like that and assume that his motives were off or that he was operating on some kind of pay-to-play sort of mentality in his mind. But when someone asked him about it, he said, when I was baptized, my pocketbook was baptized too. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Zacchaeus has only just encountered the saving power of Christ and it's not long before that newness comes out. You can't stop it. He's not the same man that he was before. Now, I wonder how that's true in your life. How has Christ's presence in your life wrought the same kind of effect? How has his saving power changed you? How is he transforming you even today. May God go on to transform us for his glory more and more. And then you see the Lord's work go deeper still into the heart of Zacchaeus, continuing on in verse eight. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Now, this is not a hypothetical situation he's, he's speaking of. He expresses this as a first-class condition. In other words, he recognizes this is something he has done. And this is how he'll seek to make restitution and right the wrongs that he has committed. So conviction is working in his heart. The Lord finds this man In his lost estate, he calls him to himself and immediately his heart springs forth with the fruit of repentance. He doesn't just say to himself, well, sure, I've made some mistakes. Now let's move on. Let's just move on. He says, I'll make a full restitution wherever possible You see him reach back to passages like Exodus chapter 22, where it talks about the penalty for stealing a sheep, that it had to be repaid fourfold, four times over. It's 2 Corinthians chapter seven with skin on. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves. What indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent of the matter. He's seeking to distance distance himself as far as possible from the former manner of life that he knew so well. Get as far away as possible from it. He makes haste to restore what he's defrauded. All that he has swindled now, you, you, you think about this. This would have been a tremendous undertaking for a man in his position, a chief tax collector 
Surely he has spent years working his way up the ladder to get to that position in this city. It would have been a tremendous undertaking to go around, to knock on people's doors and to repay fourfold, to humble himself as he talked about the Christ that he had encountered. Now you take all of this together, selling half, restoring fourfold the other, and you find a man who's gone and done exactly what Jesus said to the the rich young ruler. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. By the free gift of God's grace, the camel goes through the eye of the needle. The rich young ruler in chapter 18, you remember we saw that together. He walked away very sad. He valued stuff more than he did Jesus. This man goes away joyful. He values Jesus more than stuff. He has a new treasure, something new he delights in. Jesus says, today, Salvation has come to his house, to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. Salvation came to his house. Why? Because Christ had come to his house. Christ was received by this lost and needy sinner. Now I want you to notice what Jesus grounds this assurance in that salvation has come to his house. He says, he also is a son of Abraham. Does that surprise you? Do you, do you find yourself thinking, what, is, what does Abraham have to, have to do with any of this? Listen to Galatians 3 and, chapter, and verse six. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. No longer was Zacchaeus the mere physical seed of Abraham, but by virtue of his physical birth, he is now Abraham's spiritual seed, a true son of Abraham. Salvation came to Zacchaeus' house because he put his faith in Christ and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now that is very illuminating and very freeing for those of us who are tempted to rest in our works. For those of us who are tempted to rest in the good life we think we have lived, or even to try to find some basis of confidence in how sorry or repentant we are for our sins. Jesus does not look back on Zacchaeus's repentance and say, salvation has come to this house since he restored what he defrauded or because he made things right. Or obviously now he is a generous man, whereas previously he was so selfish. No, he zeroes in on faith. Faith. Faith that has as its object the one who came to seek and to save that which is lost. 
The Son of Man who stooped to take on flesh and blood came to seek and save the lost. Not those who think that they're doing pretty well on their own, but could use a little help on their journey through life, but the lost. That's all of us. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We can't deliver ourselves. We cannot rescue ourselves. We need a savior. We need Jesus Christ. You might look at someone you love or even yourself and think you're a lost cause, spiritually speaking, someone that is beyond saving. But dear ones, what is impossible with man is possible with God. I ask you today, are you of one mind with the Lord? As he has revealed himself in the word today, are you of one mind with the Lord? Let's go to him in prayer. Father, we bow our hearts before you and we thank you for the power of the gospel. God, we glory in your great name and we give you praise that the son of man came indeed to seek and to save the lost. Men and women and boys and girls like those that are present in this room today. Thank you. Thank you, Father, that he sought us out in our lost estate when we were not seeking him. God, thank you for the new hearts, the new spirit you have put within us for taking out that heart of stone, for giving us a heart of flesh. Lord, for all of the joy that we have found in knowing you and being known by you. God, I pray that this story we've looked at today would encourage our hearts as we consider the saving power of Christ to know that none is so far gone. There there isn't anyone who has wandered so far that they're beyond the reach of your mighty arm. Teach us, Lord, to to believe and to respond as Zacchaeus did without hesitation, faithfully, believingly, joyfully. We pray that the, the name of your son would be glorified in us. It's in his name that we pray, amen.